I'm Amy Halpern-Laugh. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools, where we discuss strategies for creating inclusive and equitable schools and youth programs that help students to develop both commitment and capacity to build ethical institutions. Our guest today is Gia Lee. Gia teaches special needs students at the Earth School, a progressive public school located in the East Village. She's been teaching in New York City schools since 2001. She ran for president of the United Federation of Teachers, the UFT, in 2016 as part of the Movement of Rank and File Educators, or MORE, caucus, and for vice president of special education in 2019. She was also the Green Party candidate for lieutenant governor in New York in 2018. Welcome, Gia. Thank you so much for having me. Gia, what do you see as the most critical issues that children in special education and their families and teachers in New York City schools face now? I guess one of the main issues right now is adequate you know, resources and funding for programs, I would say. And, and there just seems to be a lack of parity um, across the city, a lack of understanding. You know, it's a huge system, but at the same time, the priorities have not been on the actual needs of the students rather than on, on their achievement and all of the tools and metrics that go along with that. Jay, you've criticized the, the FAIR funding formula for schools as shortchanging children and special education teachers. What is the FAIR funding formula and why is that unfair? Well, the FAIR student funding formula came um, along when Bloomberg became mayor and he appointed Joel Klein and he implemented this formula that was very different from what it what was you know the old way of funding so in the past schools had two separate allocations um, one for operational costs and the other part of the, the way schools were funded um, was based on teacher salary and that was because we have a contract um, salary scales, and we had a system that actually valued veteran educators. Um, with the FAIR student funding formula now, I mean, the exception is in the name, right? Uh, it was anything but FAIR because you had allocations based on the number of students. So let's say, you know, a student had, uh, each student received about $8,000. A student with special needs would get 1.5 that amount, or a student with, um, who is ENL. The problem with this formula is that it does not take into account experienced veteran educators, um, related service providers. Uh, none of that is really taken into account in that kind of funding formula. So a question, if I remember correctly, and I may not, that the justification for the fair student funding was that the more experienced teachers tended to be located in what were considered more desirable or easier schools to teach in. So you had, for example, a district like District 2 in Manhattan or District 3 in Manhattan um, would tend to have lots and lots of very experienced teachers, whereas districts like maybe District 7 or District 8 in the Bronx might have a lot fewer. So I think, wasn't the original justification that this was to balance out the differentials in, in salaries among schools? I think the, if that's what was being purported, I hadn't heard of that, but um, in either case, there was no work on figuring out the analysis piece. So you're, they were trying to solve a problem they didn't quite understand. 
right? Why are those schools in the Bronx and the less affluent school districts or parts of the city harder to staff? Without asking those questions and really digging deep, they were, you know, just like a lot of the policies these days, um, they're band-aids or purported, you know, solutions. And if you really want, if they really wanted to fix this problem, they would have done a deeper analysis. What would be a better way of doing it? Um, do you have a sense of that? Have people worked out an alternative formula that would be, in fact, a fair funding formula? You know, that's a really great question. I think funding in and of itself can't be answered, you know, singularly. I think with understanding if there is an issue of staffing in, you know, harder to what they call harder to staff schools, um, if there is a problem with that, figuring out why that is, and I can almost guarantee they'll find schools in those areas are parts of the most segregated, um, you know, our cities the most segregated, and disproportionately the families live in poverty and with lack of access to resources. So then what funding looks like in that area has to go to address those issues. And a lot of those issues are outside of the school's realm of, you know, being able to fix. However, if we think of our schools as, you know, a cornerstone of society, then making sure we have meals programs, after-school programs, adequate arts education and extracurricular things that families might need because um, they can't afford those violin lessons or those, those piano lessons outside of school and what a lot of the more affluent families can't afford. Um, making sure that there's parity in those ways. I think funding has to take into consideration valuing experienced educators, especially in those schools. And I've had experiences where well, one in particular, where an administrator once told me, with this funding formula, you know, I can get, I know that I can afford two new teachers for the price of one veteran educator. So what I hear you saying is that the issues of, that the current fair funding formula is deficient because it disincentivizes, if that's a word, um, schools having experienced educators because basically they figured they can get cheaper teachers, that the issue of how to equalize experienced educators across the system needs to be resolved through a deeper analysis of the reasons for inequities and ways of resolving them, not through this methodology with the funding formula. Right, right. Are there funding formulas that you know of that would help in that process? Or is it just a completely different kind of, of system? I don't know of other funding forms. I own, I'm only familiar with what we currently have and what we had before. Um, and actually the current system that we have that this quote unquote fair student funding formula is what's being used in a lot of districts across the country now. Um, there's a pattern. There's definitely a pattern of this per pupil funding formula that does not take into account staffing um, and resources. Gia, getting back to students with special needs, mm -hmm. New York has implemented integrated co-teaching as a model in place of many of the, what used to be self-contained special ed classes. What is integrated co-teaching? What are its strengths? And what do you think still needs to be improved? 
I started teaching in self-contained District 75 in, say, 2001. And then at about 2005, I started doing integrated co-teaching. Back then, it was the CTT or co-teaching, co-team teaching model. They keep changing the acronym. Um, (laughs) It's hard to keep up. But I've been an ICT teacher since. And... You know, having taught in both spaces, uh, the self-contained class, usually 12 students with disabilities, small class size is the idea. The needs are, you know, more concentrated um, in the classroom. There should be opportunities for students to get more individualized attention. It's one teacher and usually a a paraprofessional. And there still are many self-contained classrooms, is that right? There, there are, but there are far fewer in district schools now. Um, the move has been in the last decade to move towards more integrated classrooms. And, you know, there's, I would actually say, you know, that's ideal, right? Two full-time teachers uh, working together. This is in the ideal world, right? A general education teacher and a special education teacher who are co-planning and co-creating and, you know, co-teaching everything together, which requires a lot of time, um, not just in the planning part, but in actual developing that relationship. And then um, ideally the, the school culture, you have an administrator who understands the values being set forth in, you know, with ICT models that we're trying to move towards a place where students, are able to work with their general education peers to emulate kind of what we want to see out in the world, right? Acceptance, inclusivity, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about it, and I've been doing, and I've, I actually did get my leadership degree at Bank Street in special education to be an administrator, specialization in special education, because there weren't very many administrators with special education backgrounds in New York City. Um, I didn't pursue that route. I stayed teaching, at least for now. I love it. But, you know, what I learned there was immensely different from what I think other places are preparing and how other administrators are being prepared in a more managerial style. So school culture really, really matters in order for integrated co-teaching classrooms to thrive. And even in those instances, you still have students who need a smaller class size. Again, you can get a smaller class size in an ICT, but we have a system that does not quite value that. So the things that would work better would be to have smaller class sizes in ICT situations, to have administrators who have stronger backgrounds or stronger understanding of special education. are there issues of resources within the classroom? Absolutely. You know, with this, you know, again, I would say like class, smaller class sizes across the board. Um, research has shown like the one of the biggest in-school factors that affect students and their well-being um, is class size. And particularly for students with special needs, um, it can be really overwhelming to have a teacher that's completely uh, spread thin or teachers spread thin by the sheer number of students 
that have needs. Because even in an ICT classroom, there are students who are general education who have needs. It's not like they are perfectly fine. Um, 19 years of my experience has been, I wish I could give each one of my students their own individualized education plan to support them. But yeah, there's a lack, definite lack of resource and the disparity again across our district or across the city is wide. I have been teaching in a really progressive public school that attracts a lot of, uh, a lot more like middle class families. We don't do letter grades, we write narrative reports, uh, we believe in bridge classes because based on developmental bands. So I teach fourth and fifth grade, mm -hmm. half of my class is fourth, half of class is fifth. And we have a parent association that works very hard to provide arts programming. And you won't find that in schools where, you know, the population is, has a higher poverty level, um, you know, and in just places where there's a really high concentration of poverty and special education needs. Hmm. What are some of the success stories where these programs have really made the difference in children's lives? I would say that there are either success stories you'll find um, in pockets across the city and wherever you find, you'll find them. Uh, it's in communities that are really strong, where there's a lot of outreach with parents, particularly not just in progressive schools. I find a lot of our progressive schools have very strong communities that really support students with special needs. But there are places, like I know in Brooklyn, deep in Brooklyn, and in Queens, mm -hmm. um, where particularly in District 75, in the last, I don't know, 10 years, I've noticed a lot of um, resources being allocated to make sure that the buildings are functional. Could you tell our listeners what District 75 is? District 75 is the citywide special education district. Um, in the past, it used to include a lot of students with severe emotional disabilities, but the last 10 years, they tried to move away from that and keep District 75 primarily students with uh, severe developmental and cognitive delays. So you were saying that you've seen a lot of focus on, on making sure the buildings are in good shape. Mm -hmm. New buildings, new facilities to address some of the physical needs of those students. Ramps, wheelchairs, elevators labs that are accessible, arts rooms, just uh, greater accessibility. I think in like 15 or so years ago, New York was listed as one of the worst in terms of providing students with adequate resources and for and placement. And that that's improved, is what you're saying? Yes, yes. When we spoke a few days ago, you mentioned that many students who've experienced generational trauma and stigmatization find themselves re-traumatized and re-stigmatized in school. Can you talk about this a little bit and some examples? Yeah, I mean, trauma in terms of the system that we live in, you know, we can go way back to the roots of slavery and what's happened to the indigenous people of this country, but those things are lasting. And because of institutionalized racism, we have a system that actually disproportionately over-refers students who are black and Latino, boys, 
um, girls are on the rise. And if you look at the New York City data, you can look at the state data as well. There's overwhelmingly disproportionate those students being referred and also um, for behavioral issues, social emotional behavioral issues. And then when they come to school, we have, you know, they're concentrated in the, in the neighborhoods. Um, test scores, right, are reflective of their conditions. And then those schools are then punished for having low test scores. And then they, there's an increased pressure on those schools to test prep, to do away with arts, physical education, recess time, all the things that we know uh, children need in order to thrive and, and develop. And the focus has become on test prep. And I know firsthand, personally, what that's like. I taught in a school like that. And I have colleagues, friends who teach around the city who feel like my experience right now at a very progressive school where we have high opt-out rates and push a more progressive curriculum and pedagogy, it's a luxury. That's a luxury. And it sounds like a dream to many of my colleagues in the poor districts out in the outer boroughs. I have a question because you mentioned over-referral. I mean, a long-time issue with over-referral has been of language minority students, where the fact that their dominant language is not English is interpreted as a special needs issue. Right. Have you seen, what's your sense of the status of that now? Is it better? Have you noticed a change, or does it seem much the same as an issue? It does seem like that kind of culture has shifted. Um, there's a greater awareness that a student who's in, you know, learning English or a new immigrant and getting acclimated, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have special needs. And I know that personally with our English as a second language teacher at our school, she's very careful about how assessments are used to determine, you know, whether or not a student qualifies for special needs. Communicating directly with her is, is very important. But I do know that I have friends in the international high schools, and they get students who've had a lot of interrupted education in their lives, gone years with, you know, having, not having gone to school. They're refugees. And so that's another set of complexities that also have to get taken into account. Gia, you mentioned that you've actually been a witness to the school-to-prison pipeline. Could you elaborate on that a little? I mean, how does the school system maintain this pipeline, and how could it be broken? Oh, that's the, the million-dollar question. <laughs> I feel like we've all been um, focused on it. Actually, when I first started teaching, I was in District 75 school, 14 to 21-year-old students, mostly from the Bronx. And there's all this research to show that third grade reading test scores are a good indicator of whether or not students end up in prison later on in life. And so many of my students there who are, it was basically what they called like a lockdown situation. So they got to leaving, I mean, they go home, but they were in and out of incarceration and trouble with the law. Uh, many of them were illiterate. And we were told this was the first year of No Child Left Behind. And I remember asking if I could, you know, teach foundations, which is a, or Wilson reading program, not foundations. Foundations is for the little kids. But Wilson's reading program was 
initially designed for adults who are literate. And I'd gotten some training, and I'd asked if I could do that. And they said, no, no, you, you have to stick to the Regents curriculum. I was their, their science teacher. Um, yeah, so they, at that time, they were taking RCTs, uh, Regents exams. And I said, but they cannot access this text, let alone develop the background knowledge in order to understand these concepts. They're, they're like literal gaps. Can we focus on giving them some literacy skills and basic life skills while we're doing this? And I was told no, which was such a shame because when I asked those guys, they, they wanted to. They wanted to learn how to fill out a job application, how to read a contract or you know read certain things. And I'll tell you, I did that kind of on my own time with them. Yeah, lunch times, after school, but the fact that that wasn't a priority and instead the testing had become the priority, the regents that, you know, of course, no one showed up on those testing dates. Wow. On, on November 2nd, Moore, NICOR, the New York Collective of Radical Educators, Black Lives Matter in Schools, Teachers Unite, and several other groups hosted a culturally responsive and sustainable education framework, curriculum fair, and, and town hall. What's your sense of the current status of the CRS framework in city schools, and, and how does it impact students with special needs? Uh, yeah, so our new chancellor has put out some really great initiatives, a lot of culturally relevant pedagogy and responsive teaching coming out and implicit racial bias training, which is fantastic, but it contradicts a lot of the these other policies that are coming out. For instance, I don't know if you've heard of the MAP testing, and I can't remember what the acronym is. The same test that Seattle, Washington had, and then Chicago, um, actually in Seattle, they boycotted this test. And actually, it wasn't, um, just to add a plug, Jesse Hagopian, who we interviewed a couple of weeks ago, who's with Black Lives Matter in schools, was like one of the leaders of that successful effort. Yes. It was so everybody should go back and listen to Jesse as well. Yes, please. <laughs> because that, you know, I became a conscientious objector and we connected through that way. It was around the same time, like we found each other and started commiserating on how to fight back. But you have this rhetoric, you know, I'm always skeptical about anything top down. So we always have to find a way through the grassroots to maintain a sense of realness and depth to the work that educators have already been doing. But the fact that there's this talk, this discussion, and possibly training coming out of the Department of Education around cultural responsive education and curriculum is, on the one hand, great. But then, you know, just about a month ago, they announced that 77 of the most struggling schools, and we know where they are in the city, are going to have to administer these map tests, these periodic map tests, several times a year. They're computerized. They're adaptive. They take up hours of kids sitting in front of a screen. And then, of course, the focus is then on getting those students to do well on those map tests. It, I feel like that's a complete contradiction to any move for implicit racial bias trainings and 
cultural responsiveness. And who's most impacted? It's always black and brown students who are disproportionately referred for special education. It's always our students who are the most oppressed getting more. And haven't the, I understand that some of those schools that they're listing as having to implement the MAP ones are actually some of the schools that have high opt-out rates and are in fact doing the kind of education that the chancellor says and the state says they'd like to see more of. Is, is that correct? That's correct. I've been in communication. We're talking right now about what to do because there are districts, you know, to talk about the MAP test a little bit, there's like an entire district. I think it's 14, um, which covers like Bed-Stuy and I think Brownsville a little bit, but they were already implementing the MAP. Um, I didn't know this. They were already doing that. Administrators are being incentivized to do this. We have to kind of wonder, you know, what's behind it. And then those opt-out schools that are in there, having spoken to them, they're scrambling to figure out how to fight back against this because it's taking up so much of the time. And they're not getting very many answers from the city, and it's the city that's imposing this. It's not from the state. Yes, they're on the state list. The CSI is a state list. But the testing is from the city, from the chancellor, directly from the chancellor himself. And they're not getting very many answers about alternatives, uh, more authentic assessment. So there's just something really sketchy going on. Hmm. Shia, you're a longtime union activist. What is the UFT doing well to support students in special education and their teachers? And what could it be doing better? Oh, I'm such a big picture thinker. I don't think we're doing enough. I don't think our union is doing what it needs to to fight back against this. Um, I'm talking about the disproportionality and impact of these policies. They have not spoken out against the map. They have not made any moves against this. Certainly, they were not even supporting the, the notion of culturally responsive education and pedagogy. And there are initiatives happening, private and public partnership initiatives happening in the city that our union has not taken any position on. High-seek standardized testing, teacher accountability, all of these untested systems that have had such a detrimental impact on our students with special needs, not to mention all of our students, and our union has not had, you know, at the forefront of it, strong fight against it or strong position until there's a grassroots wave and then it takes it on. So I'd like to see more listening happening at the union leadership end of things and less politicking. Is there stuff the union is doing well? Is there stuff that you think you've seen progress with? I mean, supporting teachers individually, pushing on CSIS over the burden of paperwork, you know, I think those kinds of things, um, handling grievances around special education violations, I think our, our union, you know, takes on. Those are very individual, and I think we need to take on a more systemic, systemic and really values-based approach on yeah. fighting for our students. Is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered? Well, I feel like we covered a lot. I just feel that there needs to be more in-person 
discussions and I'd love for you know to invite people to a more general meeting you can find us on Facebook movement at Frank and Paul educators our next one is actually November 23rd at the CUNY Grad Center and you can look up look us up on the web to find out dates and times thank you so much Julie thank you so much and thank you listeners for joining us. We'd like to hear how you've incorporated ideas you've heard on our podcast or read on the Ethical Schools blog. Also, if there are topics you'd like to hear more about, please email us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. That's hosts at ethicalschools.org. We also offer professional development for schools and after-school programs in the New York City area. Contact us for details. You can check out prior episodes and articles on our site or on Facebook and Twitter at Ethical Schools and Instagram. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denti. Until next week. Mm-hmm.